I reached out to probably 400 venture capital companies and maybe got two or three conversations. And it was, they were brief and they were like, cool, good luck. And then, um, so I was like, you know what? Screw this. I'm going to go prove it. And so I went out doing Oaken for angel investments. And, uh, it's, it's amazing. Like, you know, you talk one on one with them and they're not tied to like the venture capital world. Uh, I raised, uh, 570,000 in about three weeks. And then it was, okay, now I want to go back and I need to get a VC. Like a VC is really just this really big, like it's a certifying thing that says this is real. And so I, it's amazing. You reach back out to all of them and like you got over half a million in the bank. Everyone's your best friend. Hello and welcome to yet another episode of the Lewis and Kyle show. Today we interview Kenny Rose. Kenny is the founder and CEO of Franchairs. Franchairs makes it easy for anyone to make a fractional investment in a huge portfolio of a variety of franchise businesses, well beyond the niche of food. That could be home services like garbage, that could be coaching and consulting services that are actually corporately governed as franchises, whole bunch of industries, pretty much everything has some type of franchise model. And Franchairs allows everyday people to invest in that asset class. They're the very first platform to attempt to do this. And that's why they have a 30,000 person waitlist to hear about the launch of their very first fund, which should be sometime in the next couple of weeks, if not already by the time this is published. Their investors include Chicago Ventures. Just last year, six of their portfolio companies became unicorns, which is insane. So that's a great team they have behind them. Before that, Kenny was a financial advisor and franchise broker. This conversation covers Franchair's founding story, Kenny's business and career journey, the growth marketing strategies they've used to get you know, huge investors behind them to get a 30,000 person waitlist, like I just mentioned. And for Kenny, how he became a thought leader in the industry so quickly. We also discuss Kenny's favorite franchises from a product and investment perspective. I'm excited for you to listen to the conversation. We have a lot of fun. We learn a lot as always. So I'll switch over to it now. Enjoy. Kenny, welcome to the Lewis and Kyle show. Thanks. Pleasure, pleasure to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so our first question for you is, when did you have your aha moment for franchising? Can you describe that moment in time? Oh, for franchising, they're going to ask for franchises. Uh, for franchising came about 10 years ago, actually. I was uh, actually originally in finance. I was an advisor at Merrill Lynch. And uh, this is when the Greek economy was collapsing. And even though that shouldn't really affect our markets that much, just the headlines of it were just swaying portfolios all over the place. I'm like, this is just... You know, I, I thought that was crazy. I saw robo-advisors coming up. I was like, I need to get out of this business. And uh, I talked to a family friend, and um, yeah, I knew him as a guy who was the CEO of a company that coaches CEOs. So, like, great person to talk to about, like, that next career step. And then he threw me an absolute curveball, and he's like, what do you know about franchising? And I'm like, woof, uh, McDonald's, Subway, Taco Bell. And then he, he surprised me and said, did you know my company's a franchise? I'm like, there's franchises for coaching CEOs? He's like, no, there's franchises for everything. And we start talking about it, and I learned that they franchise, um, you know, uh, fitness, hair care, automotive. I mean, it goes on pretty much anything you can think of business-wise, they have franchised. And so to me, that was like, wow, it's a very big industry to not know that much about. You know, I had, like, graduated not that long before, and I was like, I should definitely look further into this. So that was uh, definitely, I'd say, the big aha moment was just knowing that this big business I was familiar with was a franchise, and I had no idea before. I'll uh, give you the second question that you thought we were going to ask because might as well. So the subsequent question is, you know, you're in the franchise world for a number of years. You started brokerage uh, consulting. I know there's some like people who prefer one word over the other. Uh, <laughs> and so what's the aha moment for franchises as like how you want to best engage with the franchise ecosystem in a unique way? Yeah. Yeah. So when it came to franchises, it was really just the ability to like create this avenue for anyone to invest into franchise ownership. So I'd already been like kicking around the idea because, you know, plenty of people would say like, oh, I'd love to just throw in like 50 grand and uh, be a partner in a franchise um, or something like that. And then I read about Fundrise and they were having their Series A at the time. This was like six years ago. And I start diving all into the model. I'm like, wow, I'm going to do this for franchising. And so it was like right then I decided. But I also knew, you know, I was maybe 26 at the time and uh, I was like, you know, I'm not really fundable as a founder just yet. Like, I want to go build my own business first. And so I uh, actually, that's when I moved out to Chicago, uh, started my own brokerage. And honestly, I started building it up over time. And I got featured in like Forbes, ABC, Business Insider, and all these. So basically, I built a really solid franchise brokerage on my own. And I kind of put the franchise idea on the back shelf for a bit. Because, you know, you already got one profitable business. You don't really think about when do I stop. And then uh, the pandemic happened. 
And I read an article pretty early in that people were gambling on the stock market because sports weren't on. And that was the aha moment of like, oh my gosh, okay, shut down the brokerage, get franchise going immediately. Yeah, I love that. Question about like, you just very briefly mentioned like those big media mentions. Mm-hmm. I know that Cora played a big role in like really growing the brand. Was that something like, tell us about kind of the strategy for how you became uh, like, cause I think the path to starting the brokerage was, is like a little bit more direct, but like the path to like becoming, having that like degree of media influence and being like recognized as a thought leader and something that you're relatively new to so quickly. Like how did that come about? Yeah. So it was a combination, like a Quora was definitely a huge one for it. You know, I'd, Oh, I'd kind of just been silently been a fan of it for a while. I'd get my daily digest, get everything from like investment news to Marvel to sports all in one email. And then I, one day I was like, you know, why don't I start like answering questions about this? Um, yeah, I tend to be like kind of reserved on social media, but I was like, you know, let me start putting my thoughts out there. And then they just kept getting more and more pickups. And then eventually it was one where uh, I wrote one about how much a Chick-fil-A costs. And they set, ended up sending that out to like 40 million people. And um, it was great because then, like, I had a couple articles that got that spawned off that, and I kept rolling with it. I was like, "Man, how do I keep getting more features like this?" And so I started uh, subscribing to Harrow. It's help a reporter out, and every day, three times a day, they send out an email basically saying, "Like, hey, here's all the journalist requests we have," and it's you know everything you can imagine. So I'd go to the business and finance section and hope that they were someone was requesting someone uh, to talk about franchising, which. As you can imagine, it's not that often, but I've read those emails three days, three times a day, every day for the last five or six years. And so whenever someone was writing about franchising, I was making sure to reach out to them. And, you know, you always start leveraging the last thing that you did. So, you know, it'd be like, oh, you know, the subject would be like, oh, reached 40 million people on Quora about franchise. And it was like, oh, featured on Forbes, oh, featured in Business Insider. And so it just kind of kept snowballing from there. You know, it started off like... I was doing like one quote in a top 10 list for a random blog that had like five people subscribed to it. But then you just keep leveraging that and moving on up the chain. Yeah, I think why do that... you think, why do you think it is that franchising has like not had its media moment, uh, if, <laughs> if you will, before, like, you know, every other asset class, I feel like, especially like real estate, like self storage, real estate specifically over the last couple of years has just blown up in its popularity. Mm-hmm. And, and franchises, you know, we all have touch points with franchises every day. Like anybody driving down any street is going to see multiple franchises. So why do you think it is that there aren't more people like you writing about franchising, talking about it, et cetera, et cetera? I'd say ego. <laughs> A lot of people, it's not a cool industry to them because they want their own business. It's got to have their initial idea. It's all, everything's got to be about them versus when you think about what people generally want out of business ownership, it's like, you want to make a good income, you want to have stability, you want to be your own boss. It really just starts checking all the boxes, but it's not like that, oh, it's my idea. You know, they want to be a Zuckerberg. And that's why startup world got, you know, has been blowing up over the years is that, you know, it's everyone's unique individual ideas and everyone wants to create a new one versus, hey, you know, some people just don't want to reinvent the wheel and they want what comes with business ownership without saying it's mine and I created this from the ground up. So I think just like it tends to get a bad rap because people think of that, but they also predominantly think franchising is just food. And so they think about franchising, all of a sudden they're picturing like someone sitting behind a counter at a fast food place and hating life. And it's like, yeah, that's really not what franchising is. Honestly, like fast food is just one industry out of 100 plus that they franchise in. What was the motivation for becoming a broker rather than an operator when you decided you were going to get into this ecosystem? Um, for one, that's how I was introduced to it. You know, I was introduced to the brokerage side. The uh, uh, family friend that like introduced me to franchising, he introduced me to franchise brokers. And so, you know, especially I was young and coming off of like selling financial securities, I saw it as like, wow, this is very relatable to it. And also like my dad's an entrepreneur and I've had that same problem. Like, man, I'd love to own my own business, but I don't have that like unique idea or the crazy deep experience for it. And so I got introduced to the brokerage side, but funny enough, that was a franchise too. So speaking of franchises for everything, it was a franchise of a franchise brokerage. 
And so I uh, worked for the Southern California franchisees and first off, you know, started off doing business development, eventually took over most of L.A. County for them and basically risen up as much as I could, but I couldn't buy the territory from them. And, you know, they were sold out most places in the country. It was like, unless I wanted to move to Nebraska, um, I you know couldn't actually own that franchise. So, you know, and then I just kind of kept going with what I knew, which was the brokerage side. And also, I love just having my fingers in all the different types of models. Like, you'd be amazed how many industries they franchise. And so having to know a bit about all of them, it's great to be able to like speak to all these different business models, be familiar with so many different industries. And um, you know, the last part is uh, money. It costs a lot of money to go out and buy your own franchise. And uh, you know, especially starting off uh, in the brokerage side, I, I didn't have the capital. And then uh, you, know, so you still need a couple hundred thousand in liquid capital, which I didn't have at the time. And so it just kind of... Uh, you naturally kept me in the brokerage side, but also just made me want to be an owner even more and more because I, you know, things I was uh, given to people or shown people they'd love. And I'm like, man, I love this too. And I'd always throw uh, the same offer. I'm like, hey, you know, like I could just throw my commission in there and I'd love to partner up with you. And initially they're like, oh yeah, we'd love to have you on board. But then by the end they're like, well, I've already got the money. Like, what do I need your money for? <laughs> I'm just going to lose money that I'd be earning. I'm like, yeah, it's fair, but I wanted to offer. Let's get into the starting of a franchise and kind of catch up to where you are now in that story. You've mentioned that the first hire you made was a growth person, uh, just because like that's something you learned was super important from a lot of like other experiences that you've had. So, what were the growth strategies that that person like? You hired a growth guy. I imagine you had some ideas for him as well. Like, what was your growth guy doing that you know has gotten this ticker next to you to, to such a large number of your wait list? Yeah. So, uh, Brandon, to the extent uh, that you're willing to share, yeah, growth of course. strategies are always. Uh, People are 50-50 on those. Sometimes no, they got honestly, that hidden traffic channel. Yeah, we're, we're very big on transparency around here. And honestly, like a lot of it's all about, um, you know, paid socials, obviously like a very normal way that people go. But we also wanted to go directly to where people are learning about alternatives. You know, um, I, uh, we got introduced because uh, Stefan from Alts.co reached out. Um, at the time, they were Alternative Assets uh, Club newsletter. I think I actually still got a bunch of the old swag there from when they were under that name. But, you know, uh, partnering up with these newsletters that are speaking to it. Um, you know, a lot of people go straight to thinking about like doing influencer marketing. And uh, anyone who does influencer marketing will also tell you they have like micro influencer marketing. So people who have smaller reaches, but they're much more dedicated people following them. We kind of took the same approach to how we do newsletters too, where there's a lot of smaller newsletters that they might not go out to millions of people, but they're the right people that you're trying to reach, and they're looking at these same type of things that you have to offer. Um, and then we also we've we've also been doing influencer stuff too, which has been great because they've actually a lot of them have reached out to us because they just like love what we're doing, and they're like, hey, I'd like to promote this to my network, but I don't don't do it for free. And then um, you know other times it's just stuff that you have no idea, like things just come up to you, and you have to roll with it and be willing to experiment. Like we had one where. Um, I thought it was a joke at first. This guy reached out. He was the uh, head of corporate partnerships for the uh, Anaheim Ducks. And I'm like, whoa, we're not that big yet. Sorry, guy. And uh, But we kept talking with him. And I was like, oh, no, there's actually some affordable options here that we could do. And you know, also, they're a smaller market team being in Anaheim, but it's a much more affluent market. And then you know, we kept talking about it. I'm like, man, this is seeming more and more interesting. And then we ended up doing kind of like a beginning deal with them where we were doing the signage above or behind the visiting team's bench. And uh, so we're like, you know, yeah, let's test it out. It was way cheaper than we thought. And we figured at the very worst case scenario, like if people can't, you know, see us from when they're on watching on TV, we're like, hey, at the very worst, we're like professional athletes. Professional athletes love franchises. And we're going to be literally inches away from them for an entire game. And uh, so that was just like, it was like, yeah, sure, let's test it out. And then uh, talk about ultimate ROI. Uh, we got we got a text from some uh, my my head of growth got a text from one of his friends being like hey I was watching the game before the Ducks and um, Wayne Gretzky just did like a five minute interview with Patrick Kane sitting in front of your uh, name the entire time I was like wow super unintended but amazing so you know you got to get creative you got to think outside the box and just you know, test new things out but. Um, you know, a lot of it comes organically where people just tell us, just like how we got introduced, they're like, hey, I heard about you from this. I also listened to these guys. And so just go and go where the people are. Don't try and force them into what you're uh, offering. Yeah, that's an awesome story. And I, I think, you know, it speaks to your product market fit. 
and and the stickiness of the product like i've heard lewis talk about it multiple times outside of the context of even this podcast and so (laughs) when when we scheduled with you i was super excited just because i'd heard lewis talking about it and i'm sure you know some of that wait list behind you is attributable to people like lewis just spreading the news um yeah but let's jump in a little bit to like the user experience so um, I have a, a decent amount of experience, like looking into different fractionalization platforms and, um, the different like ways in which people are trying to go about doing this. So could you walk us through sort of like the user flow, um, as a, a new user to your site, sort of in the, um, uh, the big vision, like once you have things done and everything is released, like how will that look? You know, I, I come with a thousand dollars in my pocket and there's, 30 different uh, franchises that I can choose from, or is it a fund that I can invest in? How will that look for me? Yeah, so there's a difference between like what we're doing in the short term versus right. the long term. Because frankly, most people don't have experience in franchising for many reasons. And so it wouldn't really make sense to go out and list like, hey, here's a bunch of individual locations because you don't really know what you're looking at. And on top of that, uh, we didn't really want to go out and look at you know, existing owners right now because, frankly, existing owners come in two different flavors. They're good or they're bad. And you know, if they're really good, they don't need your money. They don't want an outside investment. And then if they're bad, we have to figure out, okay, what are they doing wrong? How can they fix it? Hope that they'll actually do this. But then at the end of the day, they're still a diluted owner. So for the uh, upcoming couple portfolios that we're launching, they're uh, based for both income and for growth. So we own the locations outright, have our own management team in place, and you invest in an entire diversified portfolio. So the one that we're about to announce in the next week here is actually uh, over 50 locations. It's a $25 million portfolio, and it's uh, diversified all across the country. We have locations that are going L.A., Seattle, the entire state of Rhode Island, uh, New Orleans, Denver, Chicago, so it's all over the place. But you're also diversified by different industries too. So we've got some waste management franchises, because yes, that's a franchise. We've got some food ones, that's what people know. And uh, we want people to have, you know, different, um, you know, invest in different parts of the franchise ecosystem. But down the road, we'll especially have something where like, hey, you know, I want eventually a point where you can go scan a QR code and buy into that franchise that you were just visiting right then. Um, you know, we have a trading platform that you'll uh, be able to trade on too. So, you know, we want people to be able to exchange whether it's parts of portfolios or individual franchises. Frankly, if it's in franchising and you can own it, we want to be able to offer it. Yeah. So, what does like the best case scenario over the next, I guess, two to five years look like uh, from your perspective? Yeah. So, um, well, I guess we're about to launch Fund One, and best case is we sell it out immediately, which I think I think we'll do. We've got about over thirty thousand on the wait list right now, and then um, yeah, we want to launch another larger fund later this year, and then every year after, probably launch three to four more funds. It really depends on what kind of deals that we uh, have access to, which they've been really coming to us, which has been fantastic. And then um, you know we want to do a lot of like geographic uh, specific ones, so. You know, I'm, I'm based in Chicago. I my big dream is to have these funds where like where I go to actually walk around and get my hair cut, go work out, get my oil changed are also things that I own. And so there's a you know there's multiple parts to have uh, that kind of ownership. For one, tangibility. You know, I can actually see it, go to it, but also like built-in customers, built-in evangelists. You know, if I own it and it's nearby, I'm definitely going to go there. And I'm going to tell all my friends to go there. You know, any gym messes up on your uh, billing or whatever, you're going to say, oh, you should go to the Orange Theory I own down the street. And so now you've got people actively marketing these uh, actual assets of the fund. And so that way you really increase profitability more than you'll have with other locations in the system. And uh, we've got a lot of other fun things in mind, but I uh, can't share too much on here too early. (laughs) Yeah, totally understand. No, I, I love the idea of flipping those principal agent problems and, and creating m- more principles in order to, uh, you know, have that uh, organic marketing from the people that own the, the actual assets. Uh, yeah. I think that's a, a really cool model. Um, Thank you. So how will like portfolio or, or platform liquidity work from Franshare's perspective? Like if I am an accredited, accredited investor, obviously, and go through all of your process to buy a portion of this fund or to invest money, it's my understanding, at least at this point, that I would be able to market that uh, piece of that portfolio or, or that investment to an, another investor if I wanted to. 
and be able to take advantage of that liquidity. Is that something that's in the roadmap or, or how would that yeah, work? Yeah, oh, definitely in the roadmap coming up real soon. So, um, and it's different whether it's like you know, some funds will be accredited investors only, some are available to both accredited and unaccredited because um, those come with different types of registration you have to do for it. So when it comes to something that's for, let's say, accredited investors only, you typically have to hold that for a year just based on the nature of the investment and you know, laws that are in place. Um, but then after that, we actually already have the trading platform. So you'll be able to list your portions up there. Uh, and kind of, we, It's a bid-ask system, so you can list it for however much you want. People can bid more or less for it. Um, but same thing with once we have uh, our next portfolio out that's going to be for both accredited and unaccredited is from day one, you'll be able to go list your shares on there. And it's another part of why we continue to grow the wait list is, frankly, we could we probably already have enough to fill the first couple portfolios. But we want that demand of people who couldn't get in and who are going to pay to actually buy uh, those shares that get listed up there. Um, and so, you know, it's definitely something that the more people we, we reach, the more demand there'll be and the more they'll be able to, you know, facilitate this uh, liquidity. But, you know, got to put my SEC cap on. Uh, it's an alternative investment, so we can't ever guarantee liquidity, but we want to mm -hmm. make sure we do our best to facilitate that. And we do that by both having the trading platform there as well as having that, you know, pent up demand for it. Yeah, something I talked about with um, with Stefan from from Alts is like uh, alternative asset market making. I think that mm -hmm. could be a really interesting business in the future uh, on all these different fractionalized uh, you know marketplaces because people are are asking more than people are bidding, and it's like that that market is going to have to be made in order for it to be truly efficient in the future. Yeah, and it really just comes to like uh, the adoption of the greater market as a whole right. because mm -hmm. you know the reason why uh, stocks have a, such a fast bid ask system is that there are millions and millions of people who are bidding and asking for it. So you know once alternatives as a whole get more recognition, that'll become uh, less and less of a problem. It's just that you know literally like all this stuff came up five, six years ago where the uh, registration became allowed to where people could register this as, uh, you know, for both accredited and unaccredited investors and facilitate liquidity so that, you know, typically these were only investments available for accredited only. And so now that like the laws are there and the adoptions there, I mean, you know, Fundrise was like the only one doing this for real estate six years ago. Now there's 30 or 40 of them at least, and they're fractionalizing every asset known to man for it. So, mm -hmm. you know, we're at this like early adoption phase. And so in the next couple of years, it'll be exciting to see more and more people going to it, especially as they start seeing like kind of things that they don't like about the traditional market. And, you know, especially with a lot of influence out there and stuff. So, um, you know, it'll be fun. Basically, the more popular we get, the more uh, liquidity will be out there for people. Yeah. And then one more question for me is, uh, how will Franshares make money? Is it a traditional fund structure? Is it, uh, you know, trading fees? What, what's your, your plan there? Yeah, so there's a couple different ways. Um, you know, frankly, we don't really want to charge a asset under management fee. I mean, I prefer never to, but, you know, it's obvious we got to uh, do what's best for the company. So the first couple funds, we're not charging anything. Um, and then eventually we might go more towards like your traditional asset or management fee. But also there's a lot of ways where we're going to make money outside of that, like creating our own franchise brands. Um, you know, especially as we do more of like the geographic funds, we'll have our own loyalty reward, reward and credit card system. And so that way you can, you know, other ways within this ecosystem where you can make money that's not at the expense of the investor. But also the biggest part of it is co-investing. You know, I believe 100% in this. And so... Uh, the first couple funds, that's how we make money is we just co-invest with everyone. And, um, you know, also I come from a background in the franchise brokerage space and, you know, it literally doesn't cost the investor anything to work with a broker. You could skip the broker, go straight to Supercuts, the same investment amount. So what we did was basically think, well, why, why not take that money that's on the table there? So Franchares is set up as the brokerage, our fund, the franchisee, and we're just referring it to ourselves. And, you know, the franchisor is happy to do it because they're getting a ton of more locations. This is exactly the point of it. And for us, like, you know, we're not just trying to get a one-time payment. We're trying to build with our investors. So we just invest that commission right into the fund. And so instead of charging like 1% of everything every year, we can uh, be you know, equity partners with everyone instead and then grow our investment with them. This is definitely something someone could find out very easily on the website, but might be hesitant not to do unless we just say it. What is the minimum, right? So past the accredited investor phase, 
uh, you plan on launching non-accredited funds or funds where you don't need to be an accredited investor. Uh, is that something you have like a set minimum for? And 500 I, I like bucks. If, yep. So I think that will it, help more people want to go to the website after hearing that. Yeah, yeah. It's funny because we actually don't put the minimum up on the website because it's weird. We speak to a lot of crowds because uh, this hasn't existed for anyone before. So we're working with like, especially this first fund, you'd be amazed how many like family offices and private equity groups and ultra high net worth people are there. But on the other side, we want to make this available for the entire crowd of investors. And so that's why the minimum is only 500 bucks. We just don't actively put that on the website, but we do market for it. And honestly, the combination of the two is what makes this stronger in the long term. Um, you know, bigger check writers fill out the size and scale of the fund. And so that way you've got the economies of scale, sharing different management groups, all that stuff. But then on the other side of it, the people who invest 500 bucks to a couple grand, those are more likely people who are actually going to be customers there and actually go visit the stores and tell their friends about it. You know, the guy who invests $2 million, he's going to keep that close to his vest and not talk about it too often. But the one who invests $500, they're going to go to that place every day because they have the pride of ownership because this has been unavailable to them before. Yeah, that's, uh, that's me right now. I'm at that <laughs> stage. Like that. I have a few just like fun franchise questions. Uh, what is your favorite franchise fast food burger? Oh, you know, we actually just ran a, a March Madness contest uh, on this, actually. Um, so I'll hear yours and the crowdsource then. <laughs> um, you know, that is tough. I'm going to have to say Smash Burger. Over In-N-Out? In-N-Out's not a franchise. Oh, that's a good point. <laughs> Tried to pull a fast one on me. In and out would win that every day of the week, but they're not a franchise. And uh, but one day I'll get to them. I want to bring that everywhere. <laughs> it's one one of the lofty goals I have. Was the crowd favorite Smash Burger? Uh, you know, gosh, that feels like ages ago. I'll have to look it up. I want to say it was actually. I mean, I couldn't tell you who won March Madness, so I'll cut <laughs> you some slack for not being able to tell me who won. Burger March Madness social media contest. Yeah, I, I think I think it was a Smash Burger too. There, I, I think uh, one thing that's standing out to me uh, is just this like idea of being an equity partner and and aligning incentives toward the mutual growth. And I think that that's one thing that Chick Fil A has done very well, as well as other models that have copied them, like Culver's, where you have this owner-operator model where it's very cheap, um, like ten thousand dollars for Chick Fil A, for example, and then you have this huge like revenue opportunity. But you know, aligning those incentives are what makes Chick Fil A so good, and having that entrepreneur on the ground that is directly benefiting from the profits produced and like their efforts. So like, mm -hmm. I, I just, I think that that's really commendable and interesting that you're building this business with that in mind. Uh, and you know, it speaks to how much you've written about Chick-fil-A. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And it's, it's funny you mentioned that because I actually, uh, took that and ran with it because I love what they do. And honestly, when you think about it, that's one of the bigger problems in the franchise world is that the people who have the money are not the people who want to operate it and vice versa. And that's why these models have gone that direction. And it's also something that really inspired me. Um, you know, I think it was like two years ago. I was, uh, you know, it was Juneteenth and also, you know, Juneteenth wasn't a huge thing until really during the pandemic that people started really to recognize. And so, you know, everyone's posting uh, different stuff on there. And I was like, you know, I'm more of an action guy. And so I, Talked to one of my very good friends, Carlton, and he and I have had a lot of like long nights talking about like uh, equality, race, all of this stuff. And so I called him on Juneteenth and I said, hey, you know, like I, I posted the black square, but like that doesn't mean a lot. That doesn't actually do anything. Like how can I actually make a change? And he immediately said, invest $100 in a black owned bank. And I was like, you know what? That is a great idea. And so I kept rolling with it. And then I thought about it. I'm like, yeah, like. Most of these people who start in minimum wage at a franchise are minorities and disabled veterans and people who will never have the ability to actually go and own a franchise like that. And that's also a big problem in franchising is employee turnover. And so I thought, well, we need to create the ladder here. And so that's something that is a huge mission of mine is be able to create this ladder where you can see yourself starting a minimum wage job becoming a manager, becoming an owner, just like in the Chick-fil-A model, eventually owning a portfolio and maybe even franchise corporate. Like I want, I want there to be that trajectory where you can see how you can move upward there. Um, so it was definitely, yeah, I love the Chick-fil-A model, both because that answer definitely put me on the map, but also uh, uh, it's just been great to actually um, you know, see how I could leverage that in the real world and actually like make some change. 
Yeah. So I've thought a lot about uh, real estate tokenization specifically um, and, and how the incentives change. What do you think about like granting a um, equity piece to management or, or all of management as a piece of compensation in order to fund those management, uh, like fund management operationally? So like, for example, in an apartment building, on average, the management fee is three and a half percent per year of the total revenue. And so if you just granted them three and a half percent of the total equity and tokens, they would have rights to three and a half percent of the profits and essentially be equal, but have this new incentive model where they are a principal. And so do you think that that plays out across uh, fran shares or, or you know, fractionalization generally? Do you think that that's a, a possibility? Oh, it's uh, certainty at this point. Um, we definitely want to align incentives for the management and also just you, know, you can't just be making money off other people's hard work. So we want to make sure that there is a, and you think about it, people who start these type of jobs, there's no 401k plan normally. There's no like big paycheck or equity vesting form. And that's something that I want to change because frankly, I, I just think a lot of people are greedy. And so, you know, if you can share the wealth and actually create these incentive programs so people are making uh, equity both well, tokenization or just straight equity in the actual uh, portfolio. So the business itself, the entire portfolio, and even Fran shares as a parent company. So we want people to be able to start getting equity in all these different areas. And, you know, frankly, someone starts working for us, I'd rather they retire with us. You know, it's if you can incentivize them to keep working and growing with you, you're going to have the happiest people just like Chick-fil-A does. So I really want to create that mechanism within Fran shares. I think that's really awesome. And a lot of people are going to, I think this is what's generated a lot of hype, right? You're saying a lot of things that people want to see come true. And so they're just like, I'm on the list. Send me the email when it's here. Right. The ima- yeah. The amount of emails I get every day of when's it launching is both uh, flattering and infuriating. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, Hey, you go make it then. If you want to hear you, you, know, <laughs> you figure no, out how to I'm, make it I'm not telling that. them that, but uh, it's, <laughs> it's a comment. Just uh, let me tell you, it's, it's a fun process creating a new asset class, but we're, uh, we're there. It's uh, it's exciting for the launch coming up. I think so. Uh, another kind of fun question. If you weren't allowed to ever invest in franchises and only like operate them, what would you like narrow in on? Oh, if I could only operate one, mm-hmm. Oof, that is a great question. Um, and to be honest, I've loved the franchise brokerage side of things. So that, that could be an answer, but I feel like that's a little cheating cause I've been in there. Um, you know, kind of, I almost want to say uh, we have one that's actually part of one of the upcoming portfolios. It's called Smash My Trash. It's one of the simplest, best businesses I've ever seen. Where um, uh, basically you think about anyone that's in the commercial space, like construction, distribution, manufacturing, whatever. It costs a ton of money to haul those dumpsters off the dump every time. So Smash My Trash drives this giant rig up and mashes everything down in it. So you can just keep filling it back up. Super simple, repeat, B2B business. And so like... Operating something like that, it's you're just making friends with people everywhere you go. And then you get fun demolition side of things on that, too. So, I mean, I got to drive one of these giant rigs. I uh, destroyed a uh, giant bathtub in a dumpster. <laughs> Let me tell you, it is so fun. But also, it's just that, like, you know, it's like you get to be in sales but not have to be, like, buttoned up. You know, you're kind of just, like, walking into the back of a warehouse and just shooting the shit with people. And so, it's, uh, you know, that's a really fun one. Um, there's also like sales training franchises, which I've, I've like been through, uh, courses with them, which are super fun. And so it's just like, you know, when you get people excited and you get to help people be better at their job, those are always great. Um, so I, I'd say those are some of the top ones, but that's a very tough question. To be honest. It's like, uh, rage rooms, but heavy industrial. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they pay you for it. <laughs> I love that. Uh, it reminds me of the trash can cleaning businesses that you, you've seen pop up. It's like, yeah, w- what a business, dude. People, yeah. <laughs> people don't want their trash to be dirty. Um, but I have a question. Uh, was there a moment when you sort of like realized that this was going to work? Like the, the yeah. you know, because there are a lot of regulatory hurdles that you have to get through. A lot of lawyers, I'm assuming, that you have to talk to in order to determine whether or not this is feasible. So was there a moment where it was like, okay, wait, this is feasible. We can make it happen with enough effort. And, and what was that like? Um, man, that is a fantastic question. Uh, I think there's like two or three different points, honestly, just because like you, there's still like you never know for sure, or you just get like these very good 
this is this is a, a significant buy-in. Um, one was uh, one of my earliest advisors connected me with uh, DLA Piper. They're one of the biggest law firms in the country, and uh, basically I had to pitch them on franchise. And you know, it costs, it's a lot of uh, legal working capital to like even get this thing formed and uh, get advi- advisory documents, investor documents put together. So I basically pitched them on it, and they said, "All right." We're going to do all this uh, for free for now. When you get funded, pay us. And so right then, I was just like, wow, they're they're really buying into this if they're going to do free work for me until I get funded. Like, that was a very big moment. Um, the other one was uh, when we got funded by Chicago Ventures. Uh, so they're a venture capital company here in Chicago. And, you know, they were first checks into, like, Cameo, Spot Hero, Project 44. They had six companies turn a billion-dollar companies last year. And so um, it was amazing because, uh, you know, my fundraising process was very different than most other people. And I guess this is probably part of like the uh, will it work thing where, you know, I reached out to probably 400 venture capital companies and maybe got two or three conversations. And it was, they were brief and they were like, cool, good luck. And then, um, so I was like, you know what? Screw this. I'm going to go prove it. And so I went out doing Oaken for Angel Investments. And uh, it's, it's amazing, like, you know, you talk one-on-one with them and they're not tied to, like, the venture capital world. Uh, I raised uh, 570000 in about three weeks. And then it was, okay, now I want to go back and I need to get a VC. Like, a VC is really just this really big, like, it's a certifying thing that says this is real. And so I, it's amazing. You reach back out to all of them and, like, you got over half a million in the bank. Everyone's your best friend and they start talking to you again. And um, But then I get a lot of the same thing. It was like... This is a great idea. You're definitely the guy to do it. I don't know anything about franchising. Talk to you later. And then, so I was like, all right, I just need to find a VC that's got experience in franchising. And then uh, I came across Chicago Ventures, and um, I'd been talking with them a few times. It was going really well. I finally get to talk to, like, the founder of the fund. And, um, you know, I hear right before that he'd actually uh, uh, been invested in franchises before. And I'm like, whoa, 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 have you never mentioned this before? So he hops on the call, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, Stuart, tell me about your franchise investing. And he rolled up 500 locations of uh, one of the biggest franchise brands in the world to be their largest franchisee and then sold it to private equity. And I'm like, oh, so you get this. He's like, yeah, I get it. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, huge. And then literally I got a text like five minutes after the call from the analyst I've been working with, like, hey, can you hop on? And he'd never texted me before. And so it was like a, hey, we're on board. They love it. This is going to be great. And so that was just a huge, like, this is going to work moment for me. Um, But then uh, other than that, I feel like it's been ongoing as well because I do a bunch of, like, one-on-one user interviews as people sign up on the wait list. Like, you know, I want to understand how they find us, why why they care about franchise investing, and what we didn't answer, you know, that they're still curious about because we update our educational materials. And I've done um, 500 of those since January. And you meet a whole bunch of different people. But, like, honestly, those are where I get a whole bunch of the, ah, this is going to work. Because, like, some of these guys, they're worth tens of millions of dollars. And they're just like, how has no one done this before? And I'm like, yes, thank you. That's what I want to hear. And um, so, uh, yeah, it's a combination of different things that really got me to the uh, it's going to work thing. Do you see brokers as a marketing channel possibly because like they have a receptive audience of people who want to throw money into franchises this is like a you know potentially de-risked or just again like you can throw 50k at franchises as an abstract concept without having to dedicate your life and take out a loan and and like do a lot of the other things yeah um maybe uh to be honest is that like um, I don't want to pay what brokers make off a deal. You know, it's like, especially if they, if they, if the person could buy a franchise, they could afford it. They're going to make way more money selling them a franchise than sending them off our way. Um, but then if they're like someone who doesn't have enough capital to, uh, you know, they'd be a great fit for us. It's somewhere we just have to wait and see if like they could understand it in a way where we can make it mutually beneficial just cause you know, like honestly, I want this to be something that's for the people but if i'm like paying uh brokers a ton of money then it's going to be really tough to like maintain that um so like if they're willing to do it the right price yeah for sure but also there's enough people out there who didn't have access to franchising that we can go find on our own (laughs) that makes sense uh we'll just ask a couple quick rapid fire questions here this one is just escaping my mind i'm trying to remember it i've got one Lewis. oh yeah so I, i remembered it though just now go for it 
Uh, but don't forget yours, if that works. But I think I heard you say somewhere that the, at least near term, the largest contribution is $500,000 for someone. That's like the long, largest single contribution someone can make. And I imagine those people with the bank rules to do that are buying other things as well. Uh, you've mentioned being friends with Stefan in, in that ecosystem. So what are some of your favorite non-franchise alts that you'd like shout out for the people who can you know, have $10 million to invest in? You know, sadly, you can only take half a million of that right now. Yeah, well, actually, we, we upped that. So uh, oh, you, can, you nice. can invest a lot more if you want to. But um, as far as like other alternatives I really like, um, uh, it's funny. I've been kind of putting together my own little uh, executive forum of other founders in this space. And so uh, there, there's one called Here. Uh, it's Here.co, where they do investing into like Airbnb properties um, because they people pay a lot more for renting an Airbnb than just renting a place. And so it's really great cash flow. And um, you know, also you can really spread your wealth across different areas instead of buying like one apartment building. Um, there's another one called Vint, uh, Vint.co. And um, they're uh, wine investing, which is you know great for long-term appreciation. Uh, I do like some of the farmland one actually, uh, because again, I, I like it for the same reason I like franchises, is that it's a very underutilized asset class and it's income producing. And it's honestly really hard to find income-producing assets right now. Um, so those are like some of my top favorite ones, I'd say. I love that. Um, <clears throat> what is the best deal that you've seen go through, like with the best results in terms, like with a, a client who bought a franchise? Is there one that sticks out with just like insane returns, just like hit the lotto sort of deal? Yeah. Um, well, there's a couple. Honestly, as you started asking me that, it, it just reminded me of my biggest miss. Uh, well, not, not miss for the person, but it was miss for both of us, really, where uh, the guy was about to um, buy a couple locations of a Mako franchise in uh, L.A. area. And um, literally, we were it was the end of the year. I remember it was like the time to sign and I get a call from uh, the corporate being like, Hey, we couldn't tell you about this, but because we had an NDA in place, but a private equity group just bought the rights to all of LA County, your deals off the table. And that was just like an absolute like gut wrencher there. And I was just like, Oh gosh. Oh man. But, um, let's see. One of my favorites was, uh, <laughs> uh, this guy came to me and he would, I always like asking, do you care what it does? Like what the business is? And they always say no, but I'm like, do you actually care though? And so uh, one guy came to me and he said, I want something that has like a very big e-commerce part to it and like very little competition. And I'm like, well, it's hard to find a little competition, but uh, let me see what I can do for you. And I was going through everything. I'm like, oh, I got it. I was like, I got it, but he's going to think I'm nuts. Um, but I'm going to try it because I think this is the winner. And so I, I, sent him to, I sent him an email and there was like a paragraph, massive paragraph of just like, Hey, don't take this the wrong way, but I really think it's a good fit. Um, do you guys know Adam and Eve? <laughs> yes. The sex shop? Yeah, they have franchises of the sex shop. And so I was like, hey, it's the biggest name in the space. You get a ton of e-commerce. Like, you can just uh, start promoting it all online there and, like, s distribute stuff directly from there. And it was just all these things. And he, he calls me, he's just like, I love it. We're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, yes, yeah, so they've been killing it. It's, it was uh, such a funny thing to, to see like come to fruition there because you know like you hear about some of these franchises and you just don't know how much people are going to bite for it. Like you know, like for this waste management one, we're doing a ton in our first portfolio, but we didn't know if people were going to like really like identify with it. And now every time I talk about, it, they're like, "Oh, that makes a ton of sense. I love that." <laughs> yeah, I think in this kind of pseudo recessionary or just uncertain environment in general just everyone's become attracted to the idea of an essential business versus like a moonshot business, something that's like, well, I don't know anyone who stopped getting their trash picked up and like yeah. that all of a sudden became interesting. Yeah. And then it's, it's kind of like, you know, uh, someone posted this picture on Twitter of like a Lamborghini and the license plate said was poor. And it was like things you see before the market's about to bust. And <laughs> uh, I think like in general, everyone's just kind of have this sort of anxiety. That's like, there's a lot of things that seem like, you know, they're at un unsustainable levels uh, so everyone's kind of has this magnetism towards things that seem like more responsible and grounded in utility and intrinsic value. Yeah, I, I think that's totally right. And it's honestly just one of the many reasons why this has been like a perfect time for us to launch. Like you look at like that, 
volatility in the market, um, inflation. I'm just like, man, we need to get this out yesterday. Um, so it's been uh, really cool. And honestly, like, it's funny because I've had to talk to people like that that are looking for like the boomer bust type thing. Like, you know, especially like get a lot of crypto investors that come in. Someone asked me on a call, like, so is this thing going to the moon? I'm like, this might not be for you, man. Like, this isn't a boomer bust in two months type thing. Like, it's a great investment, but it's a long term one. Like, you, you know, it's not like waiting for when you can cash out like that. It's like it's passive income, you know. Um, so, uh, yeah, I definitely love that people are getting more grounded with everything. Yeah. Uh Oh, yeah. So this is a question. I had it bolded, but then I took my glass off and the bold didn't stand out as much. But <laughs> uh, I don't have a really good sense of what any hobbies you have, what you do for fun. What are some like non-franchise personal passions? We've been very, very on topic and I haven't even like on the other podcasts to listen to. Nothing, nothing surfaced. So I'm pretty curious. I know. No one, no one wants to get to know me. They just want to use me for my business. <laughs> but uh, no, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge skier uh, when I can. Obviously in Chicago, it's a little tougher to get out there and do it these days. But I grew up in a mountain, little mountain town. I used to ski every day. So I'm a huge, huge advocate of it. Uh, I'm a movie file for sure. I, I, I love my Marvel universe, even though it's probably, it's funny. I used to laugh at people for loving Disney stuff too much. And I'm like, oh, Disney, you got me with the Marvel. Um, but also just like, I, I love going to see most type of movies. Like it's just uh, my, my, it's nice to have a good escape like that. And then, um, you know, honestly, just anything where I can socialize with people. I tend to be, uh, I love talking with people and meeting and just learning about all different types of backgrounds and industries. Like I'm that one that loves asking what do they do and like learning all about it. So like whenever I talk to like an engineer or a doctor, they're like, how do you know these parts of it? I'm like, I, I like talking to people. So um, yeah, those are some of, the, some of the main things. Did you like the movie Eternals? No, they really, they really missed there. I loved Swing it. And a miss. I loved it. You loved it. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's why you asked that. You wanted me to yell at you. You know people hate you for it. <laughs> I knew. I, I, I knew you weren't gonna like it. <laughs> Nobody liked it. <laughs> Except Kyle. Except, Except Kyle. Right. I'm glad Disney found you though. <laughs> right. <laughs> what would be uh, three best films you've seen this year? And we'll let some late 2021 picks in if you haven't seen anything good this year. Woof. Um, man, that, that's tough. Uh, also cause I've just been like buried in this business, but, um, the new Batman was actually super good. I like that. Um, uh, let's see. There's one on Netflix, uh, a little late to discover, but called shot caller. Uh, it's with the guy who played Jamie Lannister in game of Thrones. It's, uh, kind of like a guy who gets sent to prison who shouldn't have, but then just him like rising up through the, uh, the underground world there, which is pretty cool. And then, um, also, I don't know if you asked shows too, but uh, even though I'm in Chicago, I never watched the show Shameless before, uh, which is based here, and that show is absolutely hilarious. So I've been uh, having fun catching up on that. I've heard good things about Shameless. We had a buddy uh, in like the first 10 episodes of the podcast, and we kind of became pretty close after that because we both live in Vegas, and he was in my ear the other day about Shameless, like pretty, oh, pretty really? constantly. Yeah, Angelo, <laughs> Kyle. I, I also had, um, I had a scary experience with the movie. That was a new one. Uh, I was watching the new Candyman, uh, which, you know, like, I like scary movies too, but like, uh, and I'd watched the old Candyman and then I started, uh, uh, are you guys familiar with Candyman? No. Vaguely. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. I would say Kyle looked very confused there. Yeah. For a second. <laughs> um, but basically it's like, uh, it premises like if you say the name Candyman in the mere three times, this guy comes out with a giant hook and kills you. Um, but it's all based in Chicago and it was based on like things that happened in the projects back in the day. And so they did a new version of it that uh, I think came out last year and I finally caught it. And it was insane because for one, it's great seeing like all the stuff around you in a movie. But then there's a scene that is filmed in my building on my floor. And honestly, I need to go back and freeze frame it. I, it it's like they might have even done my unit number. It is on this floor in this building. And it's where like some horror thing happens and some person gets killed, but it was just crazy. Cause it's like, it's a very identifiable building. And then I just see the floor, the floor number. I'm like, Oh no way. And I was watching it like super late at night. And I was like, all right, well this has officially gotten strange. (laughs) (laughs) That's terrifying. That's a little bit, a little bit. (laughs) Uh, You mentioned loving to talk to people and you've done 500 customer interviews. And I think this can be the last question. Uh, what would be like the most fun, interesting, or cool serendipitous outcome of just one of those 500 customer calls? Man, that's a loaded question. Does not have to uh, be the, mo- the most, just uh, one that comes to mind. No um, need to be ranking things. Oh, 
Oh, one cool one was, uh, I mean, honestly, just some of these big names that have come out, like the president of 1-800-Flowers reached out. And um, so, and just super nice guy. And well, it was like, hey, I've got all these connections for you, X, Y, and Z here. Um, but honestly, like, there's been, like, massive family offices, too, that are, like, planning on writing seven-figure checks, which has just been absolutely crazy to me. Um, I'm trying to think of uh, another good one. I feel like I just happen to have, like, a small random connection to a bunch of people for some reason, especially, like, uh, I think part of it's, like, how my network is, too. Like, I'll... Also, be like, oh, you went to San Diego State. I went to San Diego State. But then I realized, like, oh, yeah, well, I've connected with, like, 10,000 San Diego State people on LinkedIn. And it probably went out through there. But, um, yeah, honestly, they've all been great. I can't think of any, like, super crazy ones right now, though. Love that. Well, I think a lot of people are going to be interested in getting themselves on that wait list. Uh, what's the domain? Where are you on socials if you promote uh, your own writing, et cetera, that we should be redirecting people's attention to after this? Yeah, um, so the website's just franchairs.com. Uh, you can find us on all socials at franchairs. And I always say, uh, catch me on LinkedIn. I'm, I love writing on there. I just had this one go super viral on there. It's, uh, it's reached a couple million people already. And uh, so it's been awesome to see. And it was about you know a hire I made. And um, so I love uh, you know, connecting with people on that. Just like I didn't really used to share my stories. And now everyone's like, hey, you have to start sharing your story. So it's been great seeing the reception on there, especially. So uh, Kenny Rose on LinkedIn. Awesome. Thank you so much for doing this today. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Really nice chatting with you. That is going to wrap up this conversation with Kenny Rose from Franchairs. I thought that was awesome. Three quick takeaways from me. First one is kind of just this idea of these number three platforms being um, dark horses. So Kenny instead of scaling his audience on Twitter or scaling his audience on LinkedIn, just started hammering away Quora questions. A lot of people don't realize how massively popular Quora is as a platform. That's you know one of the top 25 websites in the world. By the last time I checked, it's got hundreds of millions of users. It's on par with Twitter from a popularity perspective, but no one talks about it. And some people just, you know, we interviewed Nicholas Cole last year, who was at one point in time, the most popular writer on Quora. And all he did was just answer a different question every day for a couple of years. So these platforms that, people aren't talking about that still have as much traffic are kind of like these interesting dark horses that people don't think about that could really uh, help you blow up. I call them like kind of these number three platforms, right? They're not the top one. They're not number two, but maybe they're in that C league, but they're still humongous, right? Cause the internet's humongous and franchises are kind of the same way, right? It's not the sexy thing everyone's talking about. It's not becoming a TikTok influencer. It's not becoming you know, a podcast host. It's not becoming a venture capitalist. It's not starting a tech startup yet. You know, as a fraction of GDP, it's like 3% of global GDP, which makes it like one of the biggest industries in the country. Uh, so just the interesting thing about, you know, these things that less people are paying attention to that actually could be a lot more lucrative because of that lesser degree of competition. Second takeaway is how I like how intentional Kenny is about incentive alignment. Uh, I kind of think of it's like almost like having the laws of physics on your side when you have the way when you set it up for people to behave rationally to benefit everyone involved people are going to behave rationally and everyone involved is going to benefit. That sounds like a truism, but giving equity to people, showing them that there's a route from the minimum wage role at the franchise to franchise corporate, to owning your own franchise, to a management position uh, and giving people equity compensation and incentive-based compensation along the whole way. I think it's really interesting for an investment fund that's going to have an influence on the development of projects from the ground up, be the one to shape that. And I'm really curious to see what comes from there. And third takeaway and final takeaway is just the difference it makes to see when you've already taken steps uh, and have traction for your project. So towards the end of the podcast, Kenny told a story about how he raised money and you know met with 400 VCs or at least tried to meet with 400 VCs and got very few meetings and a ton of no's. And then when he saw that he just had the hustle to go find a bunch of smaller angel investors, rally up 500,000 from smaller, more independent investors. Then the venture capitalist saw that you already have the social proof of backing. People are willing to give you money. Other people are willing to risk their personal capital on your idea. And all of a sudden they're willing to help you. It's kind of the analogy of, and if you just stand next to your car on the highway, no one's going to help you. But if they see you pushing it, uh, maybe they'll stop and help. So I think that's a really interesting new context that we've uh, seen that metaphor that we've brought up a couple of times on the show. That's all I'm going to say for this episode. We have a sponsor. They're called Espresso Displays. They're portable second monitors. They save my life while traveling, and I actually still use it while I'm home because, you know, more screens the better. Uh, I highly recommend checking them out. There's a link in the show notes if you are curious. Otherwise, say hey on socials. Easy to find us. Lewis and Kyle, anything like that on Google, you'll find us. And uh, make sure you're subscribed so you know about the next episode when it comes out. See you then. Bye-bye.